I, um, I don't know whether it's possible to cultivate the style. Nobody is precisely what they think they are. Maybe in the last moments of my life, moments of my life, I will be curious to know what it means to die. Welcome to Folk Phenomenology. My name is Sam Rocha. This is episode five of season two, featuring special guest. Helen de Cruz. Folk Phenomenology is generously supported by Whippenstock Publishers, Voice and Truth, from Biblical Studies to Classic Theology, Poetry to Philosophy, our authors are experts, scholars, and artists. St. Mark's College Center for Christian Engagement, nurturing the dialogue between Christians in the life of the academy and that of larger society. Give us this day, daily prayer for today's Catholic. Solidarity Hall, Eden plus Utopia. Black Catholic Messenger, an online publication for black Catholics. U.S. Catholic, faith and real life. Commonweal Magazine, the leading lay voice for commentary on religion, politics, and culture. The Juan Diego Network, Catholic Audio for Latinos. To support Folk Phenomenology, please share this episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform, and leave a review or drop a tip. You can also follow Folk Phenomenology on Twitter and Facebook. Helen, welcome to Folk Phenomenology. Hi, Sam. Nice to see you. It's good to see you, too. Um, I've been following you uh, on Twitter for some time. Uh, I believe it was first your music that caught my, um, caught my ear. And, um, and then I, uh, I saw all the other things uh, you do. So I wondered if, um, I don't know if you want to focus principally on your music or your work on as a philosopher or your various, very varied interests. Um, but why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll go from there. So I'm Helen de Cruz. Uh, I'm currently a philosophy professor. I am interested in a wide range of things. And it's really cool that we get to talk about these because um, I, I see philosophy uh, you know, like Pierre Hadot calls it a way of life. And I think that that's right. Uh, and lots of things fit within it, including things that aren't sort of institutionally rewarded as philosophy. There's still mm. a philosophical way of doing them. Uh, and so, yeah, music. I mean, there's so many people who are much more creative about music than I am. Like I don't compose, for instance. I just play. So, you know, in your playing, you have to be creative too. And it's kind of interesting to try to bring out what you think is a defensible interpretation of what the person has written, uh, particularly because the music that I play is music of at least five, six centuries. Yeah, I think, yeah, five, six centuries uh, old. 
Um, and so we don't know all that much. Like it's very underdetermined that music is written in a very underdetermined fashion, uh, and you have to be creative in the interpretation. Hmm. Uh, I don't know the exact names because, because again, I, I noticed that they're stringed um, guitar family instruments. But what, mm -hmm. what are the names of the specific uh, instruments? Because uh, I think you have several, or do you play the same one all the time? No, no, I have several. So I okay. have, um, I started out with a Renaissance lute. It's a very unusual instrument, but that is my main instrument. And the way I got to it was also very unusual. So, uh, you know, when young people, they always get these sort of interests like the Egyptians, uh, the Titanic, dinosaurs. And one <laughs> of my interests was Italian Renaissance. Like mm. I was completely into it. Like I saved up money to go there. And so I thought, what sort of instruments do people play then there? And they play all sorts of instruments, of course, but the lute is one of those instruments. Like the way it's commonly seen in popular culture is as a medieval instrument. And there are medieval lutes, right? Mm. But actually when it really came into its own was in the Renaissance period. So the roughly... 1500 to 1600. So long story short, uh, I saved up money. I've worked, my parents put some money because that has to be custom made, right? You can't oh, just go to okay. a shop and buy one. Although maybe now you can, but at the time certainly you couldn't. Hmm. So you had to have it custom made by a loop maker. And then uh, it takes several months. Uh, so, so it's an expensive instrument. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I learned to play that. I think I was 18 when I got it. Yeah, I think I was 18. Um, so quite a long time. And then recently I got an arch lute, which is a Baroque instrument, but it has a very similar tuning to the Renaissance lute. It just has a bunch of additional bourdon, which are like deep strings, like long strings that you can't, you can't sort of like push the strings down. So they're sort of, they're, and they don't resonate along either, although they do a little huh. bit. But they're basically for, for giving basses. And that okay. instrument is basically for, uh, you know, for, for sort of accompaniment of singing and, and a bit of solo. Mm -hmm. It reminds me, I don't know if you've seen or if you follow at all the guitarist uh, Pat Metheny, but mm -hmm. he, uh, he has a, um, a very, uh, very complicated uh, acoustic guitar that has, I think it has at least two necks. And it's strung both vertically and horizontally. And there's some of those low strings that are actually not meant to be fretted. They're just droning strings as well. Yeah. Very Pat cool. Metheny is so great. So, yeah. Yeah. I love all the guitarists. My father used to play the guitar. Unfortunately, he has rheumatoid arthritis. So mm. he can't do it anymore. And it's yeah. just such a great, great loss. Yes. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, I learned to play the guitar. Uh, when I was younger and so I know Pat Metheny and and you know all those other cool guitarists like the blind guy who plays like this like what's his name again you know he has this unusual technique do you, do you uh, know what I'm talking about I'm trying to think uh do you mean um is it Puerto Rican uh Jose yeah. um, I think I think that's another one, but that's not the one I have in mind. Oh, okay. That, I forgot. Oh, actually, I do know. I do know the person you're talking about, and yeah. I don't know I'm his blanking. name. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and all the great guitarists, you know, like Jimi Hendrix, and sure. you know, so yeah. 
No, that's great. Um, I, I suppose uh, maybe it's worth indulging a bit on this. Uh, it's it's very it's rare for me to talk to a philosopher who is interested in music, much less to talk to a philosopher who plays music beyond being generally interested in it. And it's even more infrequent that I uh, speak with a philosopher who plays a specific instrument that's within the family of instruments that I play, which is guitar. Uh, I wonder if there's anything to be said at all um, about this coincidence of uh, specifically guitar and philosophy. What do you think? Well, I know one other, well, maybe I know a few guitar philosophers, like Marcus Arvin, I don't know if you know him. Okay, no, I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't. No, but he, he, uh, he's, a co he's the owner of the Philosopher's Cocoon, okay. and he plays, plays several guitars, but he's okay. shy about them. Uh -huh. <laughs> like, it's interesting, like, it seems uh, that some, some hobbies are cooler to have than others in academia. Like say, <laughs> sports, like it's interesting. People are very sort of open and out and about about doing sports. Mm -hmm. uh, but but somehow music, like I know people who do music, but they seem a bit shy. And I'm really not that good a player. Like I, I really am not. Mm. But I still put put videos on, on. And the reason that I do it on, on public fora, such as Twitter, is that people seem to enjoy it, right? Yes. Uh, like I'm not particularly good, but I'm not terrible either. At least I hope mm -hmm. not. But I think it's just great to like enjoy uh, enjoy music together, and it's just a, a great way of doing that. Like you know, uh, music doesn't have to be so professional. Like for the longest period of time, it just wasn't and it still isn't. It's just like yeah. people just playing in their kitchen and in their uh, garage and so forth. Yeah, I think this is actually. Um, uh... I'm interested both not only in guitar and music, music but, uh, you know, the whole show's name is this word folk, you know. Um, and I think there's a, a lot of different ways to, to, to talk about how, how we should define that term folk. But I think one way to think of it is that either pre-professional or non-professional or what uh, that uh that music you would hear in the backyard or the get together music or the prayer meeting music or you know and uh and i think there is a um a sense of the folk in there that doesn't necessarily mean that the people who are playing in these very informal non-professional environments are not great players um and in a way, I, I had a I had a mentor of uh, of mine. His name is Eddie Baird. He's a saxophone player, and he, his principal claim was all music is folk music. And he would defend mm. this claim very successfully. He would say, "You you cannot provide me an example of a music that didn't wasn't born of a folk music expression." And uh, I I pretty much accept his claim. Uh, I'm thinking also about philosophers who are guitarists. When I was at Ohio State, there was a, a philosopher, Robert Kraut. Mm -hmm. who wrote the jazz world metaphysics, you know, uh, piece. And, and I know he played in town uh, and I was playing in Columbus at the time too, but we never really played in the same exact uh, oh. jazz club scene. But yeah, that's interesting. Um, what do you make of that claim, by the way? Uh, all music is folk music. Well, with early music, I think it's very interesting. So early music is a big sort of <laughs> obsession of mine and, yeah uh, my idea is that western music went downhill after 1750 uh but uh, with a bit of jazz <laughs> accepted right mm -hmm. <laughs> so i just okay. do not like contemporary music at all i just i i can't get engaged i have honestly tried 
but there's a few things like kind of blue you know sort of like a few albums that i think are very beautiful and the pet sounds album you know and pet methane can be can be interesting and fun to listen to but on the whole i just don't get engaged with modern mm. music it just doesn't do it for me um, but if you look at, at music pre say 1800s and that's basically what early music is sure. then you have to think of like the groups that would play were really small right mm. they were really small uh, and and often when you see music groups performing in historical movies i get i get annoyed because i think no <laughs> way would they have had at the court of King Arthur, who doesn't exist, but imagine he existed. No way would they have had 10 musicians. Maybe they'd have one violinist or something, yes. or a violinist and somebody beating the drums, and that would have been it. Like, they just didn't... Mm. They didn't have the amount of surplus and wealth that you need in order to have huge... So, so music necessarily, even in a court context, and the music that I play is actually music out of a court context. In a sense, there is a folkiness to them, because it's small scale. The people who made the music usually came not from the upper class, but from the middle class. A fun, fun story. Uh, so, for example, uh, you have uh, Galileo Galilei, the famous philosopher uh, mm -hmm. who uh, defended the heliocentric model. Sure. And all his family were musicians. So you had Ooh. Michelangelo Galilei and Vincenzo Galilei, and they were all Lutheranists. And they were all enormous social climbers. So they basically came from very modest milieus and they sort of climbed their way up with making lute music. And, you know, so that's how he could get all the way to being even friends with the Pope, etc. I mean, so music was kind of a social mobility thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very interesting. So definitely, I would say even the most aristocratic of early music actually like is folk. Yeah. Huh. Oh, yeah. I, I love that. That's a convenient <laughs> uh, uh, set of historical notes. Uh, I really like that. Another thing that you've, uh, and, and I think that there's also, I find that in English, the word popular uh, is is a bit too slippery for my liking. Um, when we talk about pop or popular music, for instance, mm -hmm. um, I, I've always had a maybe a, a less antagonistic relationship to the idea of popular music because the connotation of the word popular in Spanish is more of a folk connotation than I think the kind of glossy pop impression of popular music in at least within the American you know uh, scene. All that to say though that um, this word popular and I'm kind of transitioning from folk to popular here. Uh, has also been in some pretty wide use, popular <laughs> use, um, in uh, in both the humanities and also the, the popular philosophy or public philosophy. Um, right. And I know that you've had, uh, um, you recently hosted uh, a chat on that. And uh, I don't know, uh, I have some views about this. I don't know necessarily if, if, if we share the same uh, views of them. Mine are still very much in formation as most of my views about anything. But uh, I wonder if you might say a bit, though, about public philosophy or popular philosophy or what they call it, public humanities sometimes, that kind of stuff. Yeah, Sam, to be honest, I don't know if my views are set on this either. Like okay. they keep on changing. And actually, I think in a good old pragmatist tradition that we should just be thinking is what we're doing working right mm. uh, are we doing the right sorts of things like how can we engage the public 
The public is, of course, a very sort of vague notion, but I think there is a way in which you can coherently think about it. Uh, and the way that I think about it now is in line with what John Dewey talked about in his book, The Public and Its Problems, and its problems I think in 1927. Yeah. So he yep. says, yes, what is the public? What, are, what is the people? Like, who are the people? And he says, ultimately, the people are still united in some sense in that even though they are different in wealth, etc., there are certain things that they have public interests. They have interests that they share. And because of the shared interests, those interests become public. For example, we all have, uh, I'll just take a contemporary example. Uh, we all have a great interest in it not becoming too hot. Like mm -hmm. if the, it becomes too hot, uh, you know, some people maybe, if you're in Texas, you're going to be <laughs> worse affected than if you live in, I don't know. I'm going to be very careful in what to say even because my sister used to be a climate scientist. She now went back to academia, but she was a meteorologist, a climate scientist. Mm. And it's surprising the sorts of places like you think, oh, if it's colder, if you're in the mountains, you're going to be fine, but not right. necessarily, right? right. Or right. if you're at the sea, you're definitely going to be, you know, flooded. But even that's, you know, so, but lots of, so the public are, we actually as, as a people uh, are united in having this interest the interest is that it doesn't get too hot. Mm. And then the interesting question arises, why aren't we like, why aren't we doing more? Like what's happening, right? And sure. I, I, I regularly feel perplexed by that. But I think that one of the things that a public philosopher can do is identify and try to give their positive contribution to those things that are of public interest. That's at least how I think about it now. I like that idea. I mean, it. Um, this may almost quickly seem to transition to a whole different topic, but bringing up Dewey, I mean, one of the, you know, he just wrote for such a long period of time. I always say oh, there's yeah. so many Deweys, you know, <laughs> so many periods of, of, of his thought that, that are sometimes in conflict with each other. But one of the, I mean, I'm going all the way back to his biography and his upbringing and his education and his life. One of the, the marked elements of his life was uh, his religious upbringing, which was a secular, sacred kind of mixed household. Mm -hmm. And, um, and to me, a, a, a sometimes perplexing on the one hand, deeply committed to a secular democratic project, but on the other hand, having a sensitivity for what he sometimes called, he has this one little piece called a, 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 a common faith um, mm -hmm. or my pedagogic creed or like all these very almost uh, religious sounding yet nonetheless secular claims. And it struck me that one of his kind of, one of the, the great uh, maybe purposes of his philosophy was to, on the one hand, move away from a certain kind of religious formation that he was familiar with, but not to move away entirely from religion, qua religion, mm -hmm. but to preserve something. Uh, and to, to him, I think he had almost a religious connotation to this idea of the public, um, uh, or at least that it would be something that could hold perhaps um, the uh, the gap of what maybe would be lost with the loss perhaps of the great institutional religions. What do you make of that uh, in terms of my, my reading of Dewey on this? 
Yeah, I think that's very plausible. But I'm, I must say, you probably know about, more about Dewey than I do. Like, I'm interested in so many different things that I end up being being a specialist in nothing. Or, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, this is going on there. But anyway, um, I think that, so one of the things that I really like about Dewey's philosophy is that he has this sort of warm underlying sense of faith in humanity. Mm -hmm. uh, you see it in how he thinks that people should be educated, that ultimately people have to have a say in what science does, like there has to be democratic oversight, that people, you know, that things like debate, religion, are actually part of the good life. Mm -hmm. Like now we sort of, sort of like we see toxicity everywhere. Like religion is toxic, debate is toxic, mm -hmm. <laughs> change Politics, is toxic, yeah. everything is toxic. But no, yeah. Dewey says ultimately these are all sort of human projects yes. that ultimately are part of the good life. And, yeah. and one of the things philosophers, I think, can do is try to, and, and what Dewey did, and lots of pragmatists, like think also of Jane Addams. I think mm -hmm. she too oh, yeah. uh, was really great in sort of bringing out this thing about uh, that actually, I mean, this sounds smarmy to say, but you know, there's lots of common ground in, in, in human projects, in aspirations, in what makes for a good life. Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes you lose sight of that. And I do worry uh, that philosophers are losing sight of that. And, you know, so, so my project in my public philosophy, and I'm not saying I 100% always live up to this, is to <laughs> try to try to, at the very least, keep, keep that sort of picture in the background. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm no Dewey, but, you know, that's, yeah. that's the picture I have in the background. I like that. I, I find... Um... I mean, it's it's you started off by talking about philosophy as as a as a way of life, you know, and uh, and and then just now you've uh, you know been very magnanimous about you know specialization and what have you. But it seems like academic philosophy, which is I I don't think that's often what the popular conversation about either the university or the academy, much less the humanities or philosophy. Uh, I, I sometimes suspect we're actually not even speaking about the same things when we talk uh, about philosophy. But in terms of academic philosophy, um, you know, it seems these days that the drive for so long seemed to be to like, you know, expertise or area of constant mm. specialization. And now there seems to be a movement towards that, like four or five AOCs, you know, areas of concentration that, you know, more dispersed uh, sensibility. I mean, that raises a more general question, which is um, what what does a good education in anything consist of um, specific uh, focus on one thing or the knowledge of many things? I think this is a driving question between the liberal arts, for instance, and the sciences. Maybe, although I think actually, so there's foxes and hedgehogs, but I forgot which is which. Is the fox the one that runs <laughs> around and the hedgehog that digs himself in? Because actually those animals do. like the it, Yeah, it yeah. The, so the hedgehog is the one that, that is very specifically defended against the fox because of the spikes. And the fox ah. is the one that has many. That's my recollection of that yeah. piece you're referring to. Yeah. <laughs> and I think actually it's not a sciences versus humanities thing. Okay. Although I think maybe in the spirit of the humanities, that one is more sort of the broad range. Um, because I'm thinking 
I'm thinking of Stephen Jay Gould has a book on foxes and hedgehogs that I, I right. uh, you know, it's one of those books I bought and didn't read, but it's lying there waiting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but anyway, I did read a little bit in it, and he talks about in evolutionary biology how you have foxes and hedgehogs. You have evolutionary mm. biologists like, you know, Dawkins now, we know him mainly as this yeah, popularizer for good or for less good. Sure, sure. But he was, he is also, and we really shouldn't forget that, or has been mm -hmm. uh, an evolutionary biologist in his Absolutely. own right, who yeah. has contributed to debate. And he definitely is broad ranging, just like Stephen G. Gould, Eldridge, uh, and all the sort of people, John Maynard Smith, in, in sort of the golden age of evolutionary biology. And they're all hard sciencey people, but nevertheless, they were broad ranges, raging. Um, so I think that you have that sort, of, um, that sort of flavor in both. I think even though I really couldn't imagine, I know there are people who like, you know, I start out doing my dissertation on Spinoza and then uh, on the ethics, and then I write about the political philosophy and other writings of Spinoza. You just go on like your entire life. Like I couldn't imagine doing this, but on the other hand, doing something in that great depth is important. Mm -hmm. So I see this as a cognitive labor thing, right? Like I'm really grateful that some people really do work in such tremendous depth to sort of guard us from wrong interpretations and from mistaken impressions. Mm -hmm. And I think this is particularly important for the history of philosophy, sure. where, you know, you can have the idea when you sort of start caricaturing a figure such as, say, Adam Smith or, uh, you know, Nietzsche, you know, those are people like, because there is some public perception about what they said, but actually if you read Nietzsche experts and Adam Smith experts, then right. you'll see it's a lot more nuanced. So it helps people who don't have the patience to do all that reading. You know, you just have to find the right experts in a sense to, to sort of help guide uh, what you're reading because you can't just say, oh, you know, like I, I did like a few years ago. I've never read Nietzsche. Let's start with that work on Wagner and tragedy and then mm -hmm. work my way up. <laughs> and yeah, I did yeah. Cambridge edition. So you always have like an intro and a conclusion. Sure, uh, sure. But, you know, it's not that I'm turning into a Nietzsche expert. I'm still very much a novice. But, you know, if I'm guided by the right interpreters uh, and I read a bit of secondary literature, then at the very least, I'm not going to make sort of egregious errors. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I agree with that. I do think, though, there is um, a complication that arises, for instance, um, where... A philosopher, for instance, who maybe because they have the leisure or because they're forced to know a few things about something, has a certain depth of knowledge of a particular figure, could would enter a public debate with journalists and media personalities and perhaps iconoclastic type folks or whatever, um, uh, maybe it, people within certain institutional uh religious environments i find myself in those a lot those debates mm -hmm. a lot where um one may not be an expert in nietzsche or what have you but one also knows enough to know that the premises of the discussion are false or faulty and so when one pushes uh, I, I find this for instance with marx a lot i'm not a marxian scholar i don't identify as a marxist 
I do teach probably more marks than a lot of people. Um, so I have read some things I feel enough times to have some confidence about. So like, I think I know Capital Volume 1 fairly well. Mm-hmm. I enter into a discussion where Marx is being bandied about in all these kinds of ways. And I kind of want to ask some specific questions about like, what are we talking about? In those environments, I am, I think sometimes rightly critiqued as saying, oh, you're playing a game here. You, uh, you happen to know a few things about Marx and you're using that as a sledgehammer in order to ignore all of our, the whole discussion and what have you. And I find that difficult because on the one hand I can sympathize with like, but on the other hand, I want to say, well, then let's let this take Marx out of it and let's talk about this in simpler terms. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I am just a bad faith actor in those environments. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. I doubt it. I doubt it. I, I, I don't know. I don't think so. But here's the thing. I think this is just a very difficult art. And I think that you need a kind of Aristotelian wisdom to navigate, practical wisdom to navigate in that. Because I think it is very important to have facts correct as a kind of common ground when we debate. Mm-hmm. I think it's super important. On the other hand, you can go, gotcha. Like, there's a kind of very uncharitable, like, oh, gotcha. So the way I saw this particularly was you have the Graeber and One Group book, which I really enjoyed. So I I reviewed that book on on the Raven magazine, uh, which is a public philosophy uh, magazine. Uh, And I reviewed it and my first draft. So I, I enjoyed the book, but it also... Uh, there's lots of things to be really annoyed about. So, so in the end, I thought, no, the first draft of this review is just, ah, gotcha, you're not philosophers, you're talking about Rousseau. But then I thought, you know, I, I shouldn't debate these people like that, you know, if they want to debate me. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be a bit late, but Wangrove, for example, like, I don't want to go in a debate like that. I don't want to do gotcha. Uh, so I want to... You know, it's good to have the facts on record correct. Like if people misrepresent Marx systematically, I think you're totally in your rights to have a common ground to say, sorry, but this isn't Marx. This is some sort of Marx caricature. And I've seen it too, even though I know less Marx than you, probably. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, but still, it's important. But on the other hand, you can become pedantic. And becoming pedantic forecloses further discussion. And yeah. one thing I've noticed is that pedantry, pedantry is a word, right? Yeah, pedantry happens a lot with marginalized scholars. Mm-hmm. So there you see it all the time that people will sort of point at, you know, uh, commas that are put the wrong way or dates that are put, like, like, you know, silly things to sort mm-hmm. of undermine, uh, undermine the author. Uh, and so you have to be careful also of power dynamics. Like you don't want to, you know, push down a grad student or somebody like who's sure. junior, uh, you know, so there's that sort of thing. Like if you do gotcha, let it be with somebody who's really well established. Yes. You can take it. Right? right. No, I think that's, I think those are really good points. I mean, I, I think especially the dangers of, of pedantry, um, there's a real fine line between uh being pedagogical, which means, of course, uh, not just 
making your claims and arguments, but teaching them a bit, you know, uh, being mm -hmm. willing to flesh them out, to give a little bit of context, to maybe disclose your motivations. And, uh, and I think that can be pedagogical in the sense of, uh, teaching your way through something as opposed to just asserting it and expecting, a, 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 you know, a, an encounter of equals. On the other hand, though, whenever that becomes patronizing, I think it tends towards that pedant, you know, uh, a pedantic uh, approach. So is... I have some thoughts on that. So, yes, go, go, okay. please. Yes. So <laughs> I have this little book with Cambridge in 2019, Religious Wonderful. And in the book, I uh, offer a new idea of uh, what expertise is. Mm. So, so you have this idea. What is an expert? What should an expert do? It relates to your idea. I think an expert is ultimately in the public sphere, a teacher is uh -huh. somebody who has the role of a teacher, or uh -huh. you should rather defer to experts the way you do defer to teachers. And mm. I think the other ways that people talk about it doesn't really work. So Linda Zaksapsky has this very plausible model of expertise, where she says you should treat the expert as a guru. Once you've identified the expert, you just listen to the expert, because think about it, they're more likely to be right. Like for any given claim that P, the expert mm. is say, if it's a really good expert, say on the coronavirus, very uncertain situation. Suppose I've identified my expert. I think, yeah, that's a good one. And I see that she is correct, like 80% of the time. Sure. Now, I am not an epidemiologist and no philosopher is actually, unless those who studied epidemiology. So I'm just going to be 50 or something percent right for any given right. claim. Right. So for anything that I think, Zagzabski says, just defer to the expert. I say she will, you know, bigger chance of having it right. Hmm. But the problem is you see how dangerous that becomes, right? Yes. Uh, it, it, it's a very dangerous and slippery path. And for that reason, Jennifer Lackey says, no, you shouldn't treat the expert as a, um, a, as a guru, but rather mm -hmm. as an advisor. You know, mm. you just sort of listen to them and you think, yeah, I'll take your advice or no. A bit like your sports coach or something like, no, I really don't feel like running five miles today. Goodbye. Mm -hmm. But to me, that doesn't sound right either. Because yeah. we've seen in so many situations how that can go horribly wrong. Yeah. Uh, I think sometimes you ought to listen. I think there is a really an ought. Once you've identified somebody as an expert, you owe them some deference. Mm -hmm. But I don't think complete deference. So I think sure. maybe your teacher. You know, I, I think... So, so I have a, have a longer argument about this, but long story short, I think it's actually good that as an expert, you present as a teacher, because I think that's what experts do next to doing, of course, the work of, you know, developing vaccines and sending, you know, things to the moon. They also sure. just inform the public as teachers. Sure. I suppose in the example I was using, my distinction between the pedagogical approach and the pedantic approach approach is that when I am an, when I am, for instance, speaking to my peers, so let's say I go to my annual philosophy of education conference and whenever I'm in conversation, uh, with the, the Deweyans of, I'm not one of them, but uh -huh. I can talk with them. Uh, it's funny because I think I'm undermining, uh, my point by the specificity of the example, but it's okay. If I make a, if I make a, a mess of this, that's a good example too. Um, my point though, is that whenever I go and I enter in to speak with the Deweyans at the philosophy of education society, um, I can, I can move pretty quickly through a number of things. There's some agreed points. I know there's like 
multiple interpretations, but with some range and, and th there's some parameters to things. And so there, I don't really have to teach my way through anything. I can just kind of mm -hmm. talk plainly. And my mode of address is not really pedagogical because that would seemingly be inappropriate, right? On the other yeah. hand, whenever I teach uh, Dewey and my philosophy of education class, uh, I because I need to teach, I, I really can't take any of those licenses or take any of those givens or any of those premises mm -hmm. as given. Um, and so in my, in, in, in my case, uh, the meaning here of, of being a teacher is, is really about who one is in conversation with, right? Yeah, yeah, that's very important. So that's also something about public philosophy. You'll have multiple audiences. It's yeah. extremely hard to navigate. So you have to say, something like write an 800 word article uh, or you write an op-ed and they say, yeah, it's great, but you know, cut it down to 500 words. So there you go and you cut. And then it comes out and you have people saying, ah, but you missed this nuance, uh -huh. ah, but you didn't talk about that. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so there is that thing. Like, I do think, uh, you know, we have to try to be nuanced, but there sure. are definitely trade-offs. There are yes. trade-offs between speaking as an academic to your peers and speaking as to public. So I've now just finished writing a book, which is supposed to be crossover. So it's supposed mm. to be for the general public, but also for academics. But because of that, because of the fact that it also has to be for the general public, uh -huh. I have done some, like I didn't dumb it down or anything, like you don't dumb down, sure. but it's like you say a different pedagogical approach. It's a different way of talking. It's a different way of presenting material. Yeah. And there just is that trade-off. It's just because it's a different mode of engagement. Uh, and, you know, you really can't do both equally well at the same time. I think that's true. And I, and I have, a, a, in this case, a very uh, clear to me, at least, example uh, of this. So um, my field or subfield of philosophy, philosophy of education, has historically since basically since uh, Dewey made the successfully made the argument to uh, conceive of the subject matter in the teacher's college or in the normal school, mm. a part of the academic environment, which it didn't used to be, but in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, when we begin seeing this movement of schools of education and educational faculties uh, not being uh, out with the pastoral schools and other things, but being brought into the kind of the main line of, of the academy. Um, and there, of course, are universities that still don't have that. You know, Princeton doesn't have a department of education there, you know. Um, mm. The point, though, is that uh, our discipline has largely, uh, we do almost all of our work and our appointments in general are in faculties of education mm -hmm. where our field teaches um, philosophy of education. And sometimes if a place can't really afford someone who's going to only teach philosophy of education, you'll have to teach philosophy and history of education or philosophy, history and sociology of education. Mm -hmm. I'm really lucky in that I can actually just do mm -hmm. philosophy of ed here. I joke with my historian friends who are also historians of education saying, back in my old job, I used to have to, you know, moonlight as a historian and I'm <laughs> a very bad one. <laughs> um, but, you know, I've thought a lot about, so I've thought a lot about this vocationally in my own, because I, I, I used to think this makes me a second rate philosopher because I'm not teaching in an explicitly institutional academic mm -hmm. uh, environment. I don't have the same kind of peer to peer contact, um, even with my students 
um, I can't, I can't take those licenses. And then as my career has gone along and, and maybe I've had some chance to do some comparative work, uh, just looking across and seeing how others, uh, I'm not so sure that that's necessarily true, uh, because in philosophy we do value, or at least I value in the approach I take to philosophy, um, starting with as few assumptions as possible, um, mm -hmm. being able to uh, uh, explain things maybe at first without jargon and then affix a piece of jargon that then we can agree on and move from there. And so I've often said that being an unspecialized philosopher in my particular circumstance in a faculty of education in some ways denies me some of maybe the, the pleasures of philosophy. But in other ways, those denials have helped me, I think, inhabit some of the virtues that I value about the discipline. I wonder if you can comment though about, but I'm kind of uh, projecting here a lot, but I think I, it's, I, <laughs> I think there's reasons for it. I think there's so many ways. So one of the greatest disservices we do our grad students is to present there is this kind of default philosophy trajectory. Like you do your dissertation on a topic that will land you in the top 20 generalist journals or a few specialist ones, if you really have to. And then you'll get a job at an R1 while you teach a 2-2 load. Uh, you'll specialize in, you know, one of the things, <laughs> one of the one of the main or a few of the main philosophical disciplines, and you'll write some papers and maybe a book towards the end of your career, etc. So that's sort of like the picture. But we know, of course, that there are so many different ways so many diverse jobs, like, uh, you know, some of my students uh, that I've advised, they, they teach in community colleges, which is a, a very different context again. So they sure. do teach intro, sure. they do teach intro to philosophy, but the way you teach it in, in a community college is different from the way you teach it in an R1. And I think our teaching practices really have a big impact on how we write philosophy. Like, I, I've become more aware of this uh, recently with people like with very heavy teaching loads who yes. do a lot of general stuff. Their, their papers, you sort of see in the papers that there are, it's hard to say, but it's the sort of thing that they are interested in that is different from somebody who teaches us Cornell a tutu load. Mm -hmm. Like, it seems like they ask different questions. And maybe there's, there's of course, many conflicting variables like different class, uh, sure. gender, you know, ethnicity, etc. So there's so many things, but I think gen genuinely institutional context does shape us and our teaching practices more than we dare to admit. Like mm -hmm. we kind of think, oh yeah, we do teaching and then there's research and we see these are separate, but I don't think they are separate because as you say, there's certain ways of thinking that are cultivated as you are in the classroom. Yes, for sure. And, and I mean, one of the uh, one of the jokes that we make in, in philosophy of ed, for instance, is that the the theme of education or building or idea or formacion or whatever you want to however you want to cut it across the history of philosophy is that, you know, there are some some philosophers who uh, take it up like Plato does almost without needing to talk about it explicitly because it's so their, their, their work is so saturated with it from the very character of Socrates, the teacher, all the way down to the subject mm -hmm. matters that, that he's talking about. Um, but then you have some philosophers who decide one day, I'm going to write a treatise on education today. Um, and we generally notice how, um, 
how bad <laughs> generally speaking the the even contemporary but even within the history of philosophy kind of how how generally kind of uh, um, unsophisticated uh People's, for instance, just conflating schooling and education without a second thought at all. You know, these kinds of moves that couldn't really get made in um, mm -hmm. in our field. And I think every field has a sense of uh, um, of, of their specialization uh, having certain degrees of sophistication that can't be earned really outside of it in a way. Right. I wonder if um, there's a pedant there's here's a pedantic point. Uh, <laughs> some of uh, some of our listeners, um, uh, they're they, they get a barrage of guests and they kind of never know what they're going to get or what they're going to be getting into. Um, and I probably give off way too much of an air of knowing what all our conversations were are about, and that's not always the case. But one thing that I noticed about the work you were talking about with respect to expertise as teaching. And the juxtapositions you made to expertise as guru and expertise as advisor was a real classic tool of philosophical method that I love and that I teach a lot. And I wonder if we might make that explicit in terms of method. I call it the, the Goldilocks principle, I think for, <laughs> for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, that um, a, a nice way, I think, sometimes to test a concept is... Uh, say, what is an overdetermined account of the concept? What's an underdetermined account of the concept? And then uh, mm -hmm. what is my account of the concept that hopefully avoids the flaws of the over and the under? Um, I find this a really nice way because um, what it does is that it doesn't present concepts as fixed truth or 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 like it, it, it presents concepts as as coming to us always on the spectrum. And so we need to balance every concept instead of falling in love with just like mm. truth, you know, or, or beauty or love ah. or what, you know, um, yeah. I, I don't know. What do you think of that in terms of method though? The Goldilocks method? I think it's very useful. I enjoy this method. Uh, and yeah, as you were saying it, I thought, yeah, this is exactly what I'm doing or what people <laughs> do when they employ this method. Uh, and I think, so I want to just pick into something that you were just saying, Sam, sure, about, of course. about feeling, falling in love with truth. So mm. I find it so interesting in a lot of public discourse, and this is particularly people like Pinker, etc., uh, who say, like, you know, I am for truth. I'm mm -hmm. on the team of truth. Yes. Other people are not on this team. They are a team of fairyland or weird uh -huh. social justice things. But yeah. I, I'm on the un, unvarnished truth. And right. it's, it's a very attractive, I think, concept to people who sort of feel a bit bewildered. I don't want to say that in a, 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 in a way that is hopefully too paternalistic. But it can be bewildering that you see all these concepts, right? Yes. As yes. you say, all these concepts. And how do you know what concept is right? Like, how do you know? And, and then it could be such an easy shortcut to say, I cut through the concepts and I present to you the truth mm -hmm. except that you can't do this there's no way to do it like right. philosophers since Kant and earlier say this yes. is impossible yes. right uh, but it is still attractive as an idea and you keep on seeing it pop up like mm -hmm. i'm the guardian of truth you know follow yeah. me and and you don't have to worry anymore like i think it's in a sense uncertainty reduction because you're right i don't know maybe linda saksapski is right and we should just you know follow the experts but 
be very careful then, like how much their expertise extends, of course, because otherwise, you know, you get into into very strange territory. But if you follow the, maybe that is the right call. I don't know. The Goldilocks zone is not always the best situation, exactly. right? Yes, yes. Right. So I think the actually maybe we find our comfort in anything, and I find mm-hmm. my comfort in having a certain tolerance of ambiguity and uncertainty. Mm. I don't need certainty. Like life is a very flux. Like my life has been a a very, very upside down flux. And and I think everybody the last few years, and you can either try to clutch to certainties or you can give them up and say, I don't know. Right. Yeah. And, and just evaluate uh, as things come along and try to steer a good course. I think that's very inspiring um, in terms of the, the virtue of whatever this philosophical disposition might be, which is being one in which I don't know is um, uh, carries more um carries more water than people often think it does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also agree with you that there is not only, I would say, um, not only philosophical or, or epistem- claims to knowledge in terms of certainty and truth, but there's also this rhetoric, like I'm thinking of the no spin zone, uh, mm-hmm. which was the old uh, uh, Pat O'Reilly uh, Fox News uh, uh, title for one of his talk shows. And it kind of, the, the impression was like, you know, no spin here. Here we just get down to the facts and talk about them. No ideology, no politics, you know, that. Um, nothing spins, I think, as quickly and as hard as the no spin zones, ah. <laughs> you know. Um, but then there was something you did that was really elegant, which I think I, again, want to go back to the pedantic point, which is you noted that there are situations where on this Goldilocks method, it actually makes the most sense to choose the extreme overdetermined for particular reasons, not forever and not all at once. And there are equally situations where we might actually lean towards an underdetermined you know, account. For instance, whenever I'm thinking about not only expertise, but about what you were talking about earlier about COVID and what have you, uh, I'm more inclined, in fact, to say, as long as the guru has all their credentials in order and we can verify this, all things considered, it is better to overdetermine the situation in this regard than to risk underdetermining in this one. So instead mm-hmm. of going for the Goldilocks middle, let's actually bet on the guru for this right. situation, right? But it could be the case that in other cases, for instance, I would say cases of uh, uh, church authority, um, <laughs> there are historical reasons that we can see that literally the guru <laughs> metaphor points out a lot of problems. And so I would say, let's choose the underdetermined approach here, here right. strategically as opposed. And I think that that's nice. A lot of people always interpret me saying that there's this via media this perfect mean always there waiting for us and that's never what i mean but i think i I haven't been as clear as you've been here about that yeah yeah i think it's right it's also difficult and you know we started out this conversation talking about pragmatists one of the things that pragmatists do that i love is is it working for you uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. Is it working for you? Now, it's difficult to determine this. Like, say, the anti vaxxer. Here's an example. The anti vaxxer uh-huh. hasn't taken any vaccines, has in the meantime gotten COVID a couple of times, but they yeah. were okay. 
Yeah. They were totally fine. And they say now, it's gone fine. It's yeah. working for me. It's working except, for me. That's right. Except it's not working societally, right? That's right. Because that's right. So, so that's the problem. So societally, the anti-vaxxers pose problems. I mean, now you even have polio. By listening exactly. to the anti-vax media, uh, the anti-vaxxer has actually helped to facilitate that. If polio returns, they will yeah. have part in that. Um, so, so does it work? Has to me to mean does it work? you know, for us publicly, for us right. as a public, That's not right. just for me personally, because I could be lucky, right? Uh, sure, sure. Yeah. We're working, the the, um, the criterion of working individually is a very low bar. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think it's a bar that we can have put a lot of moral confidence into right. if we're clearing it, being clear. I do think, though, that this is maybe one potential... Um, question about those who share and, and i do share the view t towards uncertainty ambiguity whatnot is um the moral question <laughs> uh i don't sense either with respect to external reality nor to moral reality that you would identify as any kind of relativist uh on on matters of of moral truth or moral certainty or whatnot um but I do think that we do sometimes uh, um, maybe uh, leave certain doors open for a kind of, I mean, the anti-vaxxing is, is a good example, but maybe a more difficult example is the person who does not want to accept, for instance, the not just the historical, but the moral reality of something like the Shoah, for instance, um, mm -hmm. or the effects of colonization within the Americas in particular on indigenous people or questions of anti-blackness. I mean, I think this is the other side of the view uh, with respect to when you're talking about the no spin zone and the people, we don't want to get into social issues. In a way, they to me are kind of relativists of a certain kind because of that position. But this maybe is, I'm yeah. just a moralist, right? I, <laughs> I, I don't know. So I, I kind of think, so I moved to the U.S. just uh, for context three years ago. Okay. I've just become a permanent resident. Hey, Very happy. Yeah. Green card. Yeah. 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 It's so great. Uh, I'm really happy. But one of the things I find very interesting is how it seems like there could be a lot of common ground hmm. in the country, but there isn't. Instead, yeah. you have a lot of polarization about issues that I think, actually, objectively speaking, given the public and its interests, shouldn't be polarization about like everybody hates the way healthcare is organized like everybody no matter the political spectrum they're on except if you are one of the insurance company people maybe but i've talked to people on the far on the far right well that's just on the right uh, <laughs> you know people who like trump they, yeah, they also yeah, yeah. don't like the healthcare system right yeah, um yeah. you know nobody likes it um so i think that I mean, and, and I do read a lot of sort of sociological work, like from the Pew Forum. I think the Pew Forum is doing an excellent job in sort of showing the moral and religious landscape in America. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that you see is that in spite of all the spin and in spite of all the blah, blah about, you know, books being banned and mm -hmm. uh, gen the whole gender stuff and yeah. whatnot, that actually all things said and done, uh, if you look at the demographics that, you know, <laughs> academic professors really sort of look down on, like, say, mm -hmm. white rural folk, sure. that the main concerns they have is still, you know, having their family being well off, 
their kids growing up okay, uh, you know, their communities being cohesive uh, and things like that. Uh, and so I don't know what then, like, I, I am perplexed. Like, for example, it seems to me like you would be harming yourself if you were a climate change denier and if mm -hmm. you wouldn't make this a priority. So I think... Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think there is a combination of deception and uh, like, but I still am on team of general general shared interests. Sure. For, sure. for that sort of thing, like yeah. I don't know. This is more vague than I thought it would be. But no, I think. Um, well, I mean, I, I'm on that team too. Um, I think there are advocates of a more aggressive, perhaps, um, approach that foregoes the general will and moves directly into a kind of counterattack, right? Uh, and I think that in those cases, the, their justification, uh, which is hard to, to argue with within like a moral argument, their justification is, is simply a, a very simple moral argument that, you know, mm. the um, uh, this is not simply a matter of people's worldviews and ideas of the good life this is a matter of material moral harm being done against certain people by others whether they are willfully engaged in it or not and the only solution there is uh whether it's direct action all the way into violent revolution or other more real politic options you know with or without consensus they would say you know mm -hmm. this is where we should move um yeah I understand that this is important sometimes like take say the mass incarceration and police violence mm -hmm. it seems like it's just so like surreal you know the scale of it mm -hmm. right i mean and if you think of say the european past for example when you have these yeah. large-scale witch hunts sure. right it's very clear that the, the the will of the people there was just wrong, right? Yeah, it that was right. just bad. Right. And it had to be stopped, right? Yeah. So I totally get it, but you need to use this instrument with care. Yeah. I think that what you ultimately need is a society that is well-ordered in that uh, people have a perception of what common interests and goods are and work towards realizing them. And you have all the caveats, of course, about the minorities being oppressed. That is a problem, of course. Yes. Uh, but I think within the sort of larger polis, you know, the sort of like ancient Greek ideal of mm. a society that works together, that's important to get people on board. And that's why I think as a public philosopher, this is one of the great things uh, we can do, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's so fascinating. I'm not, so I'm going to put this in the abstract. But a while ago, there was a philosopher uh, whose parents were Holocaust survivors and who said something on Twitter about that they went to eat dinner with former Nazis. And oh, the, right. whole, the whole of Twitter went nuts. But I thought this is actually a beautiful way to think about how we can move as a society in which great moral harm is done. Like those Nazis, they did enormous moral harm. I mean, how much enormous can you get if six million people get murdered in sure. a systematic industrial way? I mean, it's just unthinkable. But even though the most egregious Nazis were indeed put in front of courts and some of them fled to South America and some of them, you know, sure. even so, sure. um, 
there were still a lot in Germany who had happily collaborated, but couldn't just put them all in prison or they chose right. not to. So right. they had to find a way forward, yeah. a way forward in which you have a lot of moral harm done by people. Right. Uh, and, and this particular philosopher said also clarifying that, you know, for this reason, he'd always thought that some sort of way of, you know, reconciliation, like you yeah. shouldn't should shove it right. down to people's throats. You should have the victims be active participants in this mm -hmm. and those who want to facilitate it, like yeah. what he is doing. Um, and I think that is a beautiful idea, right? So I think we missed the ball there. We could yeah. have discussed all of that and instead we just went with dinner with Nazis and I'm, I'm just yeah. sad. <laughs> yeah, that was a sad, I, I, yeah. I observed that and, and kind of shook yeah. my head. It's interesting, um, Paulo Freire, a Brazilian philosopher and theologian, um, he he frames this this scenario, this exact scenario, really of oppressor-oppressed relations, right? He he frames it theologically of one in which the oppressor, because of their moral wrongdoing, uh, is in need of not just reconciliation, but is in need of salvation, is in need of redemption, mm -hmm. that they are risking something. Paulo uh, Freire is a Catholic, so it, they're risking something. Um, ultimately uh, damning upon themselves. And he adds that the only redeeming class left in this immoral situation are the oppressed. And so that the oppressor in some sense relies on the oppressed, um, both to lift the, for the oppressed to lift themselves out of their own oppression, but in doing so to also then redeem and bring the the oppressors into some kind of a salvific redemption mm. kind of a thing. It's on the one hand very aggressive because it completely demoralizes yeah. the the oppressor, but on the other hand shows that abolition for instance is not simply of the interest of those who have suffered the harms of institutional uh, white supremacy or other things. Mm -hmm. I, I, I wonder how that schema, before we move into the closing things, how that schema um, makes, what you think of that? I think, yeah, so this reminds me of, like, I have to also say very briefly that I think that religion, uh, and Christianity particularly, like Christianity now, the way I see it on Twitter, I'm super demoralized. It's all like Christo-fascism. And, you know, like, because they had this little game of, you know, making abortion illegal, well, basically making so that states can render mm -hmm. abortion illegal. They did that. But I think it's a Peric victory. So I think it's a Peric victory. It's like, yeah, we won, except, yeah, nobody wants to join us anymore. So, um, mm -hmm. but I think um, Christianity has rich resources, particularly in thinking about evil, you know, and particularly mm -hmm. in thinking mm -hmm. about evil, not just as, we 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 un we can't undo the evil, but you can, in a sense, defeat the evil, in the sense that it can never be undone. But you can come to a situation that is overall better than the situation that you had uh, before, uh, and that's a rich theological notion. It of course sort of ties into the atonement and so on. And I think that that's a very rich idea that I sometimes think about when I think about all the sort of things that are horribly going wrong. I think like mm -hmm. there's this idea, I think it's very powerful. Um, so yeah, I've now lost my thoughts of uh, what else I was going to say about this. Yes, yeah, so I think, yeah, this idea that actually oppression harms the oppressed 
like uh, is, is a powerful idea. So Fanon also talks about this in Wretched yes, of the Earth. Yes, yes. Like, you know, we definitely... You but know, it harms the oppressors. And it, yeah, the yeah, oppressors yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. just as... It's not just as bad. It's less bad, obviously. It's worse if you are actually part of a colony that's, you know, being colonized. Sure, but, sure. But ultimately, these relationships are not healthy. Uh, and, and ultimately, the liberation will be, uh, you know, uh, uh, liberating for everybody. Yes. Um, so that's how I like to think about it. Uh, yeah. And that's what I think is good to keep in the background when we think about such things as, you know, Black Lives Matter, uh, and other initiatives, right? No, I I, uh, I I think that I think that's really important. I wonder if we could. Um, uh, there's so many of your interests that I'd love to tick off one after the other, but we're gonna have to leave off the fiction writing and all these other things that uh, are very rich. Uh, you, you did though key in on on maybe one of the last things I wanted to ask you about, which is um, your uh, not 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 completely solitary you're not the only person with this disposition but amongst public philosophers uh working within a broad range of the academy um you have neither a extremely uh religious self-presentation or as a thinker whose thought might be seen as religious and, and any as a, like a theologian slash philosopher or what have you. But at the same time, you have a great deal of warmth uh, towards uh, religion, both in your comments, like your ones on evil here. And I know you've thought a bit about religious disagreement. I wonder if you might talk to us about religion. And, you know, we do have some people underwriting the show that represent Roman Catholicism. So I don't know if you have any spe more specific things to say other than Christianity about that. But I would just love to have your thoughts on religion. Yeah, I was raised Roman Catholic, and honestly, it's one of the best things that happened to me. This is strange to say, uh, because I don't self-identify as Roman Catholic anymore. Uh, I have a great deal of warmth for the church, uh, but for reasons that I can't really go into, and that obviously, you know, uh, I, I, uh, I basically fell out about in my teens. Uh, but I was uh, baptized, uh, my parents are Catholic, uh, my, my mother is a Belgian Catholic, um, which, uh, you know, in Belgium, 90% of the population were, at the time that I was born was baptized Catholic. I don't know mm -hmm. what the percentage now is. So it's really quite homogeneously Catholic. And my father is a Malaysian Catholic. So Malaysia has lots of different ethnicities. And uh, the, the surname actually comes from the Portuguese mm -hmm. colonizers. So, so mm -hmm. that's, that's where that's from. Uh, and the Catholicism in Malaysia is very interestingly different. Uh, so mm -hmm. it has a lot of Asian influences uh, mm. that I think are very interesting. So Catholicism has these interesting things, like everywhere it sort of goes goes native, right? Mm -hmm. it, 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 it changes its texture and colors. So I love that about, about Catholic Church and also, you know, the music and everything. Uh, so I think... It, because I still have this frame of mind, right? And because I, 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 I have a lot of interest in theology, but also Protestant theology, so Christian sure. theology in general, sure. um, I think it is interesting and important to talk about it, but I just couldn't like, like some people, you know, Elizabeth Brunig or, you know, Jennifer mm -hmm. Frey, or, you know, are public intellectuals who like really explicitly present religiously. Mm -hmm. But I just, you know, I couldn't do that. So I have to, you know, be, be authentic and, and kind of be this searching, <laughs> the searching person that I am 
in 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 private will also be in public. Uh, mm. But I, I do understand, like I can see why people are complete hard materialist atheists. I can see why people, you know, post on on Twitter every day, like <laughs> Our Lady of, <laughs> you know, Saint Rita, please pray for us, and mm-hmm. Saint Mary, pray for us. You know, I can see that too, and and I can see a range of options. I can even uh, and this is new. I used to think astrology, tarot, etc. That's just bogus, right? You know, you have real religion, and then you have atheism, and that's respectable. And then mm. you have all sorts of, uh, you know, <laughs> all sorts of traditions that you can't really call religious, but spiritual traditions. But honestly, I thought astrology is just bogus. Uh, mm. But now, you know, I can see that they are actually spiritual exercises. So. Uh, I, I know people who do it, who like do tarot, and it is much more sophisticated. Uh, it's a kind of self-discovery, like you let the cards sort of like they fall in a certain way, and then you use your interpretations. Uh, it's very rich and interesting. So I think, you know, you just have to... I think in general, it's a good operative principle that people in general are rational and that they have certain projects to, you know, to live their life well and harmoniously. And so I tend to think of most practices that we do, unless I have strong evidence to the contrary, that they help to, you know, to help us get towards those ends that we have. Thank you for listening to this episode of Folk Phenomenology Season 2, and special thanks to Helen de Cruz. Folk Phenomenology Season 2 is generously supported by Whippenstock Publishers, St. Mark's College Center for Christian Engagement, Give Us This Day, Solidarity Hall, Black Catholic Messenger, U.S. Catholic, Commonweal Magazine, and the Juan Diego Network. Be sure to see the show notes for links to our sponsors. Also, please share this episode and subscribe on your favorite app or platform, and also find Folk Phenomenology on Twitter and Facebook. Folk Phenomenology is hosted and produced by Sam Rocha, that's me, with a soundtrack by Aaron Ross Hansen. Now go out and love the world. Dilexi Mundum. What is interesting to me, really interesting, and I can't define it, is because it's interesting. I can't say exactly what it is, but it's the most interesting, I don't say word, concept, idea. My job is to somehow make them curious enough or persuade them by hook or crook to get more aware of themselves and where they came from and what they are into and what is already there, and just to bring it out. This is what compels me to compel them. And I will do it by whatever means necessary. Love mm-hmm. is where you find it. Mm-hmm. It's where you find it. Mm-hmm. It's where you find love. Mm-hmm. It's where you find it. And you don't know where it'll carry you. And it is a terrifying thing, love. It is the only human possibility, but it's terrifying. Through 
the eyes of our ears, we see the beauty of hope. We see the beauty of pain. We see the beauty.